Good morning. We are delighted to be with you again and uh, are always look forward to, to getting here, uh, especially now that I have driven enough times that I don't get lost like I did that one time. So <clears throat> I'm going to turn on my power here. Actually, I've got to figure out how to turn on my power here. I love technology, but um, is there a button that turns this thing on? It's on the side. Is it working? Oh, that's, sorry. <laughs> one of these should turn it on. Ah, there it is, the one that says off and on. Okay, there we go. I was looking for that little circle with the line in it that tells you this is power. All right, let's pray. Gracious Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the fact that you loved us when we didn't love you. We thank you that you sent your son into the world, that we might have life in him. And as we live in this increasingly dangerous world, we pray that we would be mindful of the one we belong to and that we would follow him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, no matter what comes. And we'll give you the praise for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear a lot about the word manifesto nowadays. In fact, it's become almost fashionable to use that word to describe whatever it is that you find important. I like this one. This is the creative manifesto. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can look it up online later. But usually when we talk about a manifesto, they're, they're usually you know put together in really cute artsy ways that have... Uh, a, a lot of different things that you have to stop and you kind of turn and read and uh, eventually you figure out that it's really not saying anything. Now I like this one, the DIY manifesto. Uh, actually I don't like it because if you get down to the very bottom there it says if you can't fix it you don't own it. Which means that I do not own anything because I can't fix anything. Uh, my favorite of all is the manifesto, manifesto. Uh, today we write a manifesto. Today our second sentence starts with the first word of the first sentence. We write a short sentence, then a shorter one, and then a really, really long one that maybe doesn't make any sense, but is immediately followed by one word sentences. Then we make our point even clearer by using fragmented prepositional phrases, by repeating that first preposition, by doing it a total of three times, and then we have another really long sentence that builds up excitement for our overreaching concept that is summed up in a word that makes absolutely no sense, kumquat. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what comes across nowadays as a manifesto, but most of the time they're, they're far more serious. A manifesto is simply a written statement that declares publicly the intentions, motives, or views of its user. Uh, in the news, the word manifesto came out just a few weeks ago uh, when this gentleman, you may not know him by face, but you know what he did. He shot three police officers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And killed them. He shot more than three, but he killed three police officers. His name's Gavin Long. He allegedly had written a three-page manifesto describing why the only way for him to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in this world was to go out and shoot police officers. That has not been released, and I hope it never is, quite honestly. When I was growing up, 
there was another manifesto that was very well known. Uh, that was the Communist Manifesto, uh, where over in the Soviet Union, it said, let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians, uh, the, the ruling, or the, the, the proletarians, the, the, the people in the streets have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. In the 70s, the humanist manifestos were very well known. There are three versions of them now. Uh, this is one of the signatories of it. His, uh, the name is the great Randy. He's a magician who has dedicated his life to debunking anything supernatural. He says, I suggest that we might want to depose this incumbent, in, incumbent God and start dealing with the real world. Well, in the late 70s, Francis Schaeffer responded to that with a Christian manifesto. Uh, humanism is the means, uh, humanism means that man is the measure of all things, but it is not only that man must start from himself in the area of knowledge and learning, but any value system must come arbitrarily from man himself by arbitrary choice. Uh, manifestos, they're a way of saying what you believe and what you plan to do about it. Today we're going to look at what I call the Disciples Manifesto, or at least part of it. We're going to actually do this in two weeks. Next week will be the second part. It's in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 49. Sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plain, and that's because it bears great resemblance to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, but there are some st uh, specific differences, and one of those differences is if you look, and we'll see in, in a bit, Luke describes the setting as a level place. Uh, Matthew says Jesus went up into the mountain and then talked to his disciples. So Matthew we call the Sermon on the Mount. Often this is called the Sermon on the Plain. Were they two different events or two different versions of the same event? We really don't know. Uh, you can read the different commentators and you'll find kind of equal opinions on both. Uh, so we're not even going to go there on that. But we're going to look at the disciples manifesto today. Now, a couple of times as we go through this, we're going to uh, sort of compare and contrast Matthew and Luke, but I'm not going to spend a, a great deal of time bringing Matthew into this. I am studying Luke, and I'm actually preaching through it at our church. We're without a pastor right now, and I'm preaching about half the time. Uh, and what I, the way I've approached Luke and the way I'm preaching Luke is I'm staying with Luke. I'm not bringing in too many cross-references from the other Gospels. And the reason for that is when Luke was first written, it was written to Theophilus, it was written to one man, chances are pretty good he did not have access to all the other Gospels. Today, we have the advantage of having the whole New Testament, the Old Testament, and we can bring in things, we can you know, kind of add shades of meaning from other scriptures. But the first recipients of Luke likely had only Luke to work with. And so we're going to look at Luke's words today we will, again, make a few comparisons and contrasts. But for the most part, we want to see what Luke says. Now, to lay a groundwork for this, we want to go back to what I call Jesus' mission statement as given in Luke. You remember, Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's given the opportunity to read the scripture. And he reads from Isaiah 61 and a brief clip from Isaiah 58. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, 
to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You may also remember that he sits down and then he looks as that synagogue watches him, the hometown boy, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, uh, they weren't real pleased with that. Uh, well, actually, that didn't bother them, but it got worse as it went on. Um, so that's, that's Jesus' mission statement. Jesus says, I've come to preach the good news to the poor. Hold on to that. To proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, I've come to reach out to the lowest part of society, the poor, the prisoners, the oppressed, the blind, the people nobody cares about. So let's set the stage. I'm a storyteller. I write novels. I write books. And I always approach when I am speaking in the Gospels or another narrative passage, I like to approach it like a storyteller. See the stage as it's set up. All right, it says, early in that chapter, Jesus went up into the mountain. One of those days, Jesus went into a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them whom he named or designated apostles. So as Luke presents it, Jesus goes up into the mountain. He prays all night. He chooses 12 of his larger group of followers and designates them as apostles. Now what happens? Next day, he goes down with them, the 12, and stands on a level place. Again, was it in the mountain? I tend to think it might have been. Just a level place on the mountain. If, you, you know, if you're on a mountainside, it's kind of hard to have a crowd because they're all going to fall off the side. So uh, he stands on a level place wherever he was. And then Luke describes the crowd for us. Now Matthew, in his gospel, simply says, Jesus basically talked to his disciples. Matthew doesn't give us who was there. Luke does. He said, first of all, a large crowd of his disciples was there. Okay, So he had chosen 12, but there was a much larger crowd of people who were following him. But there were also a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem who had come out. So now we have the large crowd of disciples. Now we have a larger crowd from all over Judea and some from Jerusalem, and I think we can probably assume safely that some of those were not real favorable to Jesus. Some were probably Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. If you go up to this point in Luke, you'll see that Jesus seems to have taken delight in tweaking their noses on a number of occasions and challenging their prejudices and their attitudes. And so we have a great number but it doesn't even stop there. It also says, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, which was a predominantly Gentile area. So it's possible, again, we can't say conclusively, but it's possible even there were Gentiles there. The point is, there's a big group, okay? A lot of people, and they weren't simply there to hear Jesus' latest sermon. It says they had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, 
because power was coming out from him and healing them all. So this group that has come together, many of them have come, not just to hear Jesus' message, although that was part of it, but they wanted to be healed. They wanted to be touched. They were constantly crowding him, and Jesus was healing them. That's the setting for this manifesto. The next thing Luke tells us is, looking at his disciples, Jesus begins to speak. So we have this huge group. We've got the 12. We've got the larger group of disciples. We've got people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon gathered around, waiting with bated breath, and Jesus begins to speak. And he begins giving what we call the Beatitudes, Luke 20 to 26. You'll find that parallel, obviously, in Matthew 5. Now let's think about Matthew and Luke here for a minute because I want to draw a few contrasts. Because as you set those side, beside, uh, side by side, you'll see some distinct differences. And it's important to note those differences. Again, a lot of times we tend to just read Matthew into Luke, but I want us to just stay with Luke today. Matthew, as you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel, they are largely internal. For example, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke, you'll see, says, blessed are you poor. He does not add in spirit. He just says, blessed are the poor. So Matthew is internal primarily. He does get a little bit external near the end, but it's primarily internal. Luke is external. Matthew in the Beatitudes gives us eight consecutive blessings. It's blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Luke gives us four blessings and four woes. So there's a distinct difference. Matthew's is primarily third person. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. Blessed are they. He doesn't use you until he gets to the very last when he's talking about persecution. Luke, blessed are you poor. And blessed are you, and blessed are you, and blessed are you, and woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you. So there's a difference in presentation. So let's see those four blessings. First one, and we're going to move through them pretty quickly because they're pretty straightforward. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Remember, you're part of that large crowd. Maybe a disciple of Jesus, maybe a curious person, maybe someone opposed to Jesus, Jesus says, blessed are you poor. Remember, don't read poor in spirit into it. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Okay, next one. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Okay, remember Matthew internalizes, blessed are they who are hungry, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry in Luke. And he, he emphasizes, blessed are you who are hungry now, for yours, or for you will be filled. Third, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Four blessings. 
But then he adds an encouragement after that. And it's really interesting because he says, rejoice in that day. In other words, when, you're, when you are persecuted, when you're hated, when you are excluded, when people speak evil of your name because of the Son of Man, rejoice. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. You know, I could possibly go with the rejoicing bit, albeit grudgingly. Okay, this is part of what Christians go through. He didn't say rejoice. He said leap for joy. I don't know that I can leap anymore, but uh, in any case, he said leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven, and that's how their fathers treated the prophets. Okay? So we have four blessings. Blessed are you poor. Blessed are you hungry. Blessed are you weeping. Blessed are you persecuted, hated, excluded, insulted. Now, I'm going to pause for just a second. Is Jesus saying that being poor is an automatic ticket to heaven? Okay. Is he saying that being hungry is an automatic entrance into the kingdom of God? Is he saying that everybody who is weeping is blessed in God's kingdom? Is he saying everybody who's persecuted? No, I don't think he's saying that because there's one phrase that I think centers the whole thing, and it's that last phrase, because of the Son of Man. As Jesus is there looking at his disciples, and remember it said he looked at his disciples, he's saying, if you identify with me, and remember the culture they were in, you're going to be poor. If you identify with me, you're going to be hungry. If you identify with me, you're going to weep. If you identify with me, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. You're going to be excluded. You are going to be insulted. But remember, rejoice. Leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Well, let's think about the woes. We have the four blessings. The four woes are like the opposite side of a coin. The four woes correspond directly to the four blessings, and they are the polar opposite. Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Now, again, I'm inferring here from the text. This isn't written anywhere. But I kind of imagine that at this point, Jesus raises his gaze and looks at the larger crowd. Perhaps those who are thinking about whether or not to follow him. Perhaps those who are already decided opponents and are just figuring out a way to torpedo him. And he looks out at them and he says, woe to you who are rich. You already have your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed, because you're going to go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, because that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. So we have four blessings and four woes that are the polar opposites of one another. And as you look, 
there's a word there that seems to categorize the whole thing. Woe to you who are rich. You know, you're well-fed, you're rich, you're comfortable, you're happy, you're laughing. And everybody thinks you're great. He said, if that's your case, woe to you. Now, is Jesus setting up a dichotomy, rich versus poor here? Is he saying the poor are, you know, they're in with God. The rich are automatically God's enemies. Well, you could almost draw that conclusion from the New Testament. Let me run some scriptures by you. There's, I didn't see that one, but there's the dichotomy. Is it the poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted? Versus the rich, well-fed, laughing, well-spoken of. Think for a minute. After the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, how may I have eternal life? Hey, very simple. Just give away everything you got and come follow me. The guy turns around, leaves. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? That's not a real happy statement. Think of James. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? You know, James is addressing a problem in the churches at that point where if a rich person came in to the meeting... Hey, come up here. Let's give you the best seat. And, you know, we got donuts over there. Uh, you, get, you, know, you get the donuts, uh, and, 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 and we got awesome coffee. Please come. We want you in our finest accommodations. But he says if a poor person comes in, he says, uh, there's a corner over there. Have a seat. Uh, no, hey, we don't have enough donuts to go around. So uh, get some broccoli back there that maybe, you know, you would like. Uh, he says, you become judges with evil thoughts when you act that way. Because God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. What about this one? We're still in James. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay, the working men who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgent. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. It's safe to say James doesn't have an incredibly high view of, of, of rich people. What about Revelation? To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. And they were in abject poverty. He says, but you're rich. Uh, remember Laodicea. Uh, you say, I, have, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Psalm 113, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Oh, yeah, Jesus' mission statement. 
He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Now, why all this emphasis on rich versus poor? Well, it's not because God is saying poor people have an inside track to the kingdom of God. They're all, all, all automatically saved. And he's not saying rich people are automatically condemned. But think for a minute, the culture of Jesus' day. Think of the lepers. How many people reached out to the lepers? Yeah, they didn't. Well, hmm. What about the poor people? What about the beggars? What about the people who were at the bottom of society? You see, years ago, this is not a political reference, but I, you know, I remember Ronald Reagan came out and he had what was called trickle-down trickle economics. You know, I don't understand any of that stuff, so I don't even know what it meant. Aside from the, the you know, you take care of the people on top and it's going to trickle down to the people at the bottom. That's my economic theory, I guess. Um, well, this is almost trickle up. Because if you care for those at the bottom, those at the top will be cared for. It goes without saying the people who are rich tend to take care of the rich. It's the people at the bottom who are left out. And Jesus' emphasis is reach out to those who are poor, who are prisoners, who are blind, who are oppressed. The Disciples' Manifesto. Now, this is only part one. We're going to complete this next week. But this is the first part of it. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that I may be poor and hungry and weeping and persecuted and hated and excluded and insulted because of the Son of Man. You see, what Jesus is saying as he's talking to those people on that hill, as he's saying, if you choose to follow me, there will be consequences. And many of them suffered those consequences, being cast out of the synagogue, being rejected, being martyred, because they identified with Jesus Christ. To be a follower of Jesus Christ means I may be poor, I may be hungry, I may be weeping, I may be persecuted, I may be hated, I may be excluded, I may be insulted because of the Son of Man, and I'm okay with that. Which begs the question, what if I'm not poor? What if I'm not hungry? Trust me, I'm not. What if I'm not weeping? What if I'm not persecuted, hated, excluded, insulted because of the Son of Man? I think there are three things to take away. One, give thanks for your privilege. We live in an era and a land of unprecedented prosperity. The poorest among us are rich compared 
to most third world countries. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that when, man, I'm fighting to pay my bills. I, it's all I can do to keep up with, with everything. And, and some days I don't know if we're going to make ends meet. I feel poor. I'm not rolling in dough. I'm not living, you know, in, in, in a mansion. And I thought about that the other day. I was sitting on our front porch and looking around at the property God's given us, you know, about six acres and a, a, a nice little house. And I realized, you know, there are people in Sri Lanka, there are people in Africa, there are people in Asia. They're lucky if they have a cardboard box. I said, God, you made me rich. Yeah, I may not be rich in comparison to the ultra-rich, but I am indeed materially wealthy. Should we go on a guilt trip because of that? No, that's a blessing. That's a privilege. And as Christians living in this prosperous country, we should give thanks for that blessing and never take it lightly. Second, remember those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted. There are people all over this world, followers of Jesus Christ, who because of their identification with him face death every day. And yet I go through many days and never think of that. Hebrews 13 says, remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them. I thought about that the other day. If I were in prison, and not, not prison for committing a crime, but if I were in prison because I was persecuted, you know, what would I be praying? Well, I'm going to give you some books to read in a minute that will help answer that question. But third, count the cost of following Jesus. We live in an era and an age and a land of unprecedented prosperity and freedom to express our faith. Don't take that for granted. And don't assume that's always going to be the case. Now, I'm 60. You know, I don't know how many more years God will give me, but those of you who are younger, and particularly the really young among us, may face a totally different world than we face right now. And the idea of this Disciples Manifesto is that I count the cost, and even though I may not be going through those circumstances right now, by God's grace, I am prepared to accept them. I had an opportunity to write a book a couple months ago. Unfortunately, I didn't get the contract, but I was invited to, uh, to audition, actually, to be the writer of a new biography of Richard Wormbrand. How many of you know who Richard Wormbrand is? Yeah, a handful. You need to know about this man. I'll tell you a story in a minute, but I'm going to give you your reading homework. You don't have to read these all by next week, but I would recommend that you get these. One of them's free. The book's called Tortured for Christ. It is free. You can get it online, torturedforchrist.com. Read it. There are two other ones, In God's Underground, written by Richard, and The Pastor's Wife, written by his wife. They were serving Christ in Romania. They are Jewish Christians, lived in Romania, and then World War II happened. 
and the Nazis occupied Romania. And this is the thing that just blew me away when I realized it. My dad fought in the Pacific Theater in World War II. And the last year or so, I've been reading and watching a lot about World War II history. And you think, thinking of it from our perspective in the West, it's, you know, we, what we see, what we think about is America's involvement, the incredible invasion at D-Day, where we went in and liberated Western Europe. But I'd never thought of the people in Eastern Europe who had lived under Nazi occupation. And their liberators came, but you know who their liberators were? The Soviet Union. And so they literally went out of the frying pan into the fire because the Soviets came in and freed them from the Nazis and then installed an even more oppressive regime. Richard Wormbrand was a fairly prominent minister in Romania at that time. Once the Nazis, or the Nazis were thrown out and the, the Soviets came to power, the communistic leadership in the country called a Congress of the Cults. The cults were you and me and any other religious faith. And they were all summoned to the Parliament Hall. And so they all gather, all the, all the leaders of the different denominations, different faiths, you know, Protestants, Catholics, Muslims, all gather together to find out what's going to happen. The room is lined with red flags. A huge picture of Joseph Stalin overlooks the meeting. Joseph Stalin is elected as the honorary patron of the event. Richard and his wife, Sabina, are there. And one after another, leaders of the different denominations and religious faiths are given the opportunity to come to the, to the podium and speak. And one after another, bishops and priests and, and preachers and even you know, imams, they get up there and they talk about how wonderful it's going to be and how perfectly they believe they will be able to work with the communistic government. Now, Richard and his wife had already been reaching out to people in Russia. They had even been reaching out to the Soviet soldiers who were coming as liberators. They knew what communism did. They knew the atheism and the hatred for anything regarding God. And as all of these ministers are, are going up and praising the communists and saying, we will work with you, Sabina senses that Richard is about to explode. And she whispers to him, they are spitting on the name of Christ. Go up there and do something about it. 
Okay. Richard looks back and he says, if I do that, you won't have a husband. She looked him right in the eye and said, I do not need a coward for a husband. Go right this wrong. This incidentally was being broadcast on national radio. Richard goes up and they are the, the Soviets, the communists, not the Soviets, but the communists are excited because he was a very influential man. And so they figure he's going to, you know, this will ice it. And Richard gets up there and he says, our responsibility as servants of Christ is not to exalt men and earthly systems, but to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Well, one of the leaders said, cut his mic off. But the whole crowd, for the first time, broke into cheers and began clapping. And they started chanting, pastor, 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 pastor. Eventually, they did cut the mic off. Richard left the platform. But he knew from that moment he was a marked man. It didn't happen right away. But sometime later, he was on his way to church. He never made it because he was captured by the secret police and that began a 14 year time of imprisonment, most of which was spent in solitary com confinement, enduring tortures and experiences that are beyond anything that you can conceive. We don't have to face that. I often wonder what I would do if I had to face that. I would hope God would give me the grace. But the point is, there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. That cost could someday be exacted from you and me. And if we haven't counted the cost, where will we be? The Disciples Manifesto, I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, may find myself persecuted, hated, hungry, weeping, But by God's grace, I embrace that because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll say the second half of that and look at, okay, so what? How should I react? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the blessings that you have given us. They are beyond measure. Help us never, ever to take those for granted. And help us not to forget that around the world there are Christians right now who are in prison, who are suffering, who are dying because of their identification with Jesus Christ. May we never forget them. May we never take our prosperity lightly. And may by your grace we be able to stand firm and also teach our children that to follow Jesus Christ means that there is a price. Grace and salvation are free, but in this world, as Jesus said, we will have trouble. Give us your grace in Jesus' name.